Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, hosted by Thara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. A few weeks ago, Caroline Stolte had talked to us about her new book on Indo-Dutch engagement. Today we are going to have another academic talk to us about the Dutch in South Asia. Marcus Wink of the State University of New York is going to talk to us about his book, Mission to Madurai, Dutch Embassies to the Nayaka Court of Madurai in the 17th century. In English and Dutch, extensively annotated and with a comprehensive bibliography, Marcus's book is yet another addition to the corpus of work on non-British colonialism in India. Over to Marcus. Good morning, Marcus. Hi, Dara. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you talking to us today, and uh, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm sure this interview will be a fantastic addition to our database. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, um, it's great. So, could you just tell us something about yourself before, you know, we get to the book? Let's see. Well, um, I was born in the Netherlands, so I got my initial education there. Um, and I think from early onwards, history has always been uh, uh, fascinating to me. And I think to a large extent that has to do with my teachers. So, uh, I think... For many of us, uh, goes uh, the fact that uh, we owe what we are to a large extent to our teachers. And so I had a wonderful history teacher uh, in high school, even. And um, um, and then I went to college at Leiden, University of Leiden. I got my undergraduate degree there. And um, there was a wonderful group of teachers, professors there. Um, I should mention... Um, Professor Hastra, Femme Hastra, a company historian, a historian of the Dutch East India Company. Uh, Professor Brown, um, teaching maritime history. And I also had the fortune of having um, actually an American teacher there, George Wienius. And um, so that was a, a wonderful group of people there. And so I graduated there many years ago. And... And subsequently had to think about the rest of my life, what I was going to do. And um, fortunately, somewhere along the line, I... Oh, I could. Um, somewhere along the line, I met a... Um, uh, through Renius, he established a contact with Minnesota. He went to a conference somewhere and um, said he had this student looking for a graduate fellowship and... They said, well, fine, send in your application, which I did. And to make a long story short, that application was accepted, and um, that was in 1990. I, um, I went to the to, uh, United States and went to the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, 
had another wonderful group of people there, um, especially the early modern group. And uh, I should mention a few names. Uh, my advisor, of course, uh, James D. Tracy, um, Carla Phillips, and her husband, Wim Phillips, and also uh, Stuart Swartz. Um, so that was just uh, some of the, the wonderful people that were, uh, that were present there. So I, I, I think if there's a, as an honor debt, then, uh, then I should first start and, and mention those names. So, yeah, and I graduated there in 2008, and uh, not 2008, sorry, 1998, and uh, then went on the market and uh, ended up here in Fredonia, so that's 14 years ago. Here I am. So that's a long time. That is a long time, yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of uh, balancing the time uh, in the Netherlands versus the time in the States, and uh, if I'm doing my math correctly, uh, I'm getting close to 50-50. Uh, 50% <laughs> of my life here and 50% of my life over there. So, so what did your research focus on? Uh, well, Mike, interestingly enough, I've always been fascinated with uh, the so-called golden age, the 17th century. And uh, just like in any other country, uh, as a kid, you, you grow up with, uh, with sort of the, the nationalist version of, uh, of your 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 country, and um, of course you go beyond that. But but that sort of um, was the first spark, you know, the period when um, the Dutch Republic went overseas um, was one of the great powers, and um, so we started from there, and then uh, so gradually, so in Leiden I was exposed to maritime history and uh, the Dutch East India Company through um, through Professor Brown and Professor Hastra. And um, I did a master's thesis there on Malacca, the Dutch in Malacca. And um, I took that with me to Minnesota, uh, but was advised there by, uh, I think, yeah, Professor Phillips, who said that I, I should focus on a, on a new topic. And um, at that time, I was working in the James Ford Bell Library, which is uh, part of the, uh, the campus, university campus in, the, in the, um, the Wilson Library in Minnesota, and um, came across this box of documents, uh, manuscript papers relating to the Dutch in India. And one of the documents that was in there was a description of um, the Nayaka state of Madurai by a VOC servant and described as a resident in Tiruchirapalli. And that started me thinking, and especially because I knew that uh, this area was uh, relatively underexplored for a number of reasons. And, and one of the reasons was that this was sort of a, a border area between various uh, jurisdictions of the Dutch East India Company. Um, I mean, there are accounts of the Dutch in Ceylon, there are accounts of the Dutch in Coromandel, there are Dutch uh, accounts of the Dutch in Malabar, but, but nothing really specific about um, Southeast India and Madurai in particular. And then one of the problems, of course, is that in order to write a, a comprehensive uh, account, you have to go through the records of all the different uh, VOC administrations, because obviously they all relate to some extent to this area. So, um, let's get, let got the ball rolling. The, the, the simple manuscript that I came across in the Daniel Bell Library set the path towards my dissertation topic and, and, um, some of my, my further research. And, well, 
Yeah, so the book is basically uh, uh, an offshot of your dissertation. I like the offshore. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely an um, offshot or an offshore of my, uh, my, my dissertation. Um, it's actually my, my dissertation is something um, that I'm working on now as a next project. Maybe we can, we can talk about it in a second. But, um, but yeah, this is really a, a small part, very small part of, uh, of my dissertation research. Uh, my dissertation research was based on uh, the contacts, uh, interaction between the Dutch and the Nyaka state of Madurai uh, in the second half of the 17th century. And of course, these embassies are part of this, this interaction that occurred during this time period. And fortunately enough, there were, um, there were records preserved of these, uh, these embassies. So that's... So, yeah, go ahead. So what I was wondering is uh, about the book and are you chosen specifically to focus on the embassies and that um, actually it was a very formalized setting, you know, I mean, how much, uh, I mean, scope was there for negotiation, you know, like by the Dutch and, um, you know, talking to all these local kings I mean, it wasn't like they were talking to the traders or something where the field was, you know, much more freer. So given this, um, why would you have chosen to focus on, you know, the embassies? Mm -hmm. Well, embassies, of course, um, and, and I mentioned it right in the introduction, are basically the, the most spectacular subgenre of European travel literature uh, and have always spoken to the imagination of, of audiences, both contemporary audiences in the 17th century, but of course also in the present. Um, so, that's certainly one of the reasons. Now, um, these embassies themselves are interesting because they provide um, a certain human element to um, these, these interactions between these, these two well, institutions or, or corporate uh, entities. Uh, a state with, with its numerous officials and, on the other hand, um, the Dutch East India Company with its local representatives. So, so it's sort of an entry point into to looking at, at mutual relations. Um, so it, it, it's a starting point to further explore, to put that in a larger context. Um, and, and that's what I do in the introduction, to, to sort of place these three embassies in the larger context of, um, of the interaction between these two groups, in particular the, the mutual perceptions that to some extent... Um, Influenced these uh, these these, um, these embassies, of course. Of, apart from the ambassadors themselves, uh, and, and I make a few few references to that in um, in the introduction as well. How there are certain differences between uh, between uh, these uh, these three ambassadors um, that 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 allows us also to um, to keep the human element in, in the in the historical narrative. And for me that that's very important. Of course history is about larger forces and structures and, and, and contacts and limits of the possible if you want to put it in Bodellian terms. But uh, but at the same time we should also not forget that uh, we as humans have a uh, continue to have a, a certain uh, impact on the larger historical forces. So that's sort of this this uh, Dialectic between the dialogue between these, these two that, uh, that I think provides a very interesting uh, setup for uh, for these embassies and the larger analysis of the uh, the interaction. Um, so could you just you know tell us something about the book in a nutshell, especially about the accounts that you chose mm -hmm. to reproduce? Right. Um, so the the accounts themselves uh, are about three embassies that were sent by the Dutch East India Company. Uh, into the interior of Southeast India, one in 1668, 
uh, the second in 1677, and the third one in 1689. Um, and the 1668 mission is the uh, mission under Hendrik Adrian von Rede, the future commander of the Malabar coast, and perhaps not unknown to, uh, to some of the audience as uh, uh, someone who consigned the, uh, the writing of the Corpus um, Malabaricus, um, and who also set up the educational system on the island of Ceylon in the, in the 1690s for indigenous uh, ministers, uh, catechists. Uh, so uh, that's the first mission of 1668. Um, at that time, both Parties were basically set on a on a collision course. Um, they were engaged in aggressive policies, um, and um, at, at this point, and here you can see sort of the uh, the interaction between the larger forces and the human element. Von Rede um, is not particularly the best choice for an ambassador, certainly not in, in 1668, because. Um, basically, right from the beginning, he alienates the people that he um, he meets through his, um, let's say, um, arrogance. <laughs> um, he's a very interesting character. He, he, um, if you compare the three accounts to, this is the one that that, that has, literally speaking, uh, the greatest value. I mean, he's, he's certainly educated. Um, he has a certain level of appreciation for indigenous uh, science and, and architecture, which of course is later translated in the Hortus Malabaricus. Um, but at the same time, he's, he's also someone who, um, who thinks very highly of himself, is abrasive, and, and that it's, that it's uh, apparent right from the beginning. And so here we have a combination of larger forces, and, and that's what I try to explain in the introduction to um, that at this point, both parties are set on a opposite agenda that, that goes on well. And here you have this, uh, this arrogant captain at this, time, at this point, a military captain, who, um, who stands out on this embassy and, and alienates his host. And then, of course, um, this sets in effect a series of events in, in, um, in, while he is in Pirichirapali at the Nayaka Cap, um, his residence is attacked. And, of course, this could only have occurred with the connivance of the uh, Nayaka authorities. Um, so, communications are not ruptured at this point. Talks continue, but, but in the end, um, he basically leaves the capital and returns empty-handed. And next year, 1669, we have the outbreak of open hostilities. So this is, this is sort of an event that certainly did not contribute to the improvement of relations, and, and in fact uh, uh, contributed to the deterioration. Um, so that's the first embassy, that, and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about the larger context later. Um, second embassy of 1677 um, is the one that, uh, that basically set off my journey on the path towards uh, Madurai. Um, this is the um, the account that I, um, or at least an account that I encountered in the James Bell Library in in Minnesota. Um, this is not so much a journal, but a description of the Nayaka state of Madurai that was produced afterwards. The actual journal, unfortunately, is, as far as I know, no longer existent. Um, but we have this this post-embassy report that description that, that um, the ambassador wrote. And the ambassador's case is um, 
an individual, a company assistant named Harold Buffing. And um, Buffing actually, right from the beginning, has, has carried a, uh, a certain sympathy, for me at least. As an historian, you tend to identify with your, uh, your topic to some extent. Uh, he is someone who started out as a military servant of the Dutch East India Company and then is transferred, obviously because he has certain qualities, literary qualities, to the um, civil administration of the Dutch East India Company. And he is picked in 1668, uh, 1677, um, by the Dutch commander of the Madurai Coast, and um, this attempt in 1677 is basically a last-ditch attempt by the company's imperial or imperialist faction um, to realize their agenda. And it is a last-ditch attempt because, as I also indicated in introduction, by this time there are a series of changes happening, um, including a castle revolution in Batavia, the Dutch East India Company headquarters in Asia, where the imperialist faction loses out against a more moderate or mercantile faction. And so right before we see the change of the guard, the imperialist leadership in Ceylon sends out, tries to, to at least realize its, uh, its agenda by sending out this embassy in 1677. But then, um, and this is really a turning point, while the ambassador isn't Tirochirpali, um, the leadership in Ceylon receives information or instructions and orders to recall the ambassador. All right? So, um, Bossing is, is recalled, and, um, and so here we have another one of those uh, moments, in this case uh, in 1677, where these embassies provide an entry point also in measuring the the relationship, the health of the relationship, and also the, the health of the, the parties. And by 1677, both parties suffer from overstretch, imperial overstretch. Um, and um, in a way, for, for these aggressive policies that they have pursued. The third, 1689, um, in a way, is, um, as far as the literary quality is concerned, the least interesting. It's, it's um, produced by, again, a company assistant, relatively low official. Um, his name is uh, Welters, Nicolas Welter. And um, this guy is basically your typical paper pusher, your bureaucrat, administrator, very unimaginative, very uncreative. And um, basically, and, and one indication of this is that uh, he, when he reports the so-called conversations he has with officials of the Nyaka state, he, he literally verbatim reproduces the text of his instructions. Right? Um, so whether he really had those kinds of in, in conversations or um, he is just typically the un, unimaginative uh, creative paper pusher administrator um, is open to question. But... Uh, this embassy um, is sent out at a time when things basically seem to go back to normal in the late 1680s for both parties, but there are larger forces at work, uh, structural changes in the intra-Asiatic trade, in the Euro-Asian trade, that um, basically 
points to a change in, in um, change of the guard, where gradually not only the Nayaka state of Madurai is overtaken by the larger pan-Indian Maratha Mughal struggle, and the Dutch are overtaken by the English and the French. And so, so that's this is a gradual process, but there are there are clear indicators that that things are changing for the for the Dutch here, and also for the Nayaka state. Okay, so so these three embassies. As, as I mentioned, as um, entry points for the health of both parties, but, but also for the state of the relations between um, the, the two sides. So the question here is, uh, why were the Dutch in fact interested in engaging with the Nayaka force? I mean, as you mentioned, Madurai, you know, it was mm-hmm. inconveniently located. Yes. Um, so what, what did they hope to get? Yes. Well, well, what they tried to get, and this is kind of interesting, uh, the consistency in the agenda of the Dutch East India Company during these three embassies, so over the course of, in this case, two decades or more, um, that they basically want the same things. They have a typical agenda, typical of um, a political merchant uh, of the age of mercantilism. Right. So one of the things that they uh, they want is, uh, of course, certain privileges as far as customs and tolls are concerned. Um, they want, among other things, the exclusion of other Europeans from the area, um, and preferably also from some of their competitors, and what they refer to as robbers or pirates, the the Muslim Marakayar traders from the east and west coast of India. Um, they also want certain safeguards for the merchants, for the weavers that they employ or to which they have advanced money and cash. And um, what they would like to have too is some kind of fortified settlement along the coast, the permission to fortify their main settlement and uh, in addition, perhaps the lease of some of the ports along the coast. So, so certain um, prerogatives that safeguards their position along the coast at the exclusion of others, of their rival, both European and Asian traders. And, and what they're interested in, among other things, of course, are textiles. Right? So textiles are the, uh, the main export produce of India, certainly. Um, so, um, and in addition... There's also the pearl fishery, the chunks fisheries, but, but certainly textiles are the raison d'etre for the, the company presence here along the southeast coast of, of India. And so the courts of Madurai were in a position to help the Dutch achieve all this because they were merely one of, you know, many regional kingdoms. So, I mean, what like the other age over, I don't know, the other regional states? Um, so, so... Yeah, um, first and foremost, the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, and, and what could, um, perhaps one could also explore what, what does uh, Madurai want out of this. Um, what we have here is a typical marriage of convenience, right? Um, both parties have, have little or nothing in common. They basically have very different agendas, right? On the one hand, as I just mentioned, the VOC wants certain prerogatives. Um, and um, on the other hand, the Nayaka state basically wants to pursue an open, what could be described as an open-door policy. Right? Um, the more traders, the merrier. 
it wants to retain control over the coast. And uh, so it's very wary and, and in fact uh, staunchly opposed to the requests for a fortified settlement um, um, and only in times of extreme fiscal emergency are they willing to allow the temporary short-term lease of some of the ports along the coast. Um, so, so there's a basic clash of interests that exists between these two. They have very different agendas. Um, but what they have, can have in common at times is um, converging political interests. And uh, this, of course, um, play, takes place in what could be described as a South Indian Game of Thrones, perhaps. Um, the VOC um, is one of the players. We have other European traders. Um, but we also have a number of Asian actors here. Um, of course, we have the Nyaka state itself, but also, um, most notably, the Tevar of Ramnath, one of the major, the most important, um, let's call it for lack of a better word, vassals or independent-minded vassals of the, of the Nyaka state. Um, and we have also political merchants, portfolio capitalists, such as the Piriyatambi Marakayara. Right? So there is a whole array of forces. And then we have other Nyaka rulers in the area. So in times of war, when there is war between the various Nyaka rulers in South India, when the Nyaka state is at war with the Tevar, um, it starts to look for allies. And, and not only the Nyaka state is looking for allies, but also, for instance, the, the Tevars of Ramnath are looking for allies. So the VOC re receives requests for military assistance or financial assistance. Um, so, so there are times when, like I said, we can talk about a marriage of convenience. Right? When, when, when the two have temporarily at least certain things in common. But, but overall, these, the, the agendas are, are, are very different from both groups. You mentioned that, uh, you know, you hope to contextualize, you know, through the book, uh, the political situation in um, South India between the fall of Vijayanagar and the rise of Haider Ali. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how do we actually, you know, what can we read about the situation, the political situation in South India during that period by looking at, you know, Dutch Nayaka interactions? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's say the political situation had been any different, you know, you think that there have been that much scope for this kind of engagement? Uh, you're breaking up for a second. Can you hear me? Pardon? Okay. Oh, I, I couldn't hear your last word, but uh, if yeah. you want to describe what's happening in the 17th century, yeah. is um, the relationship with Vijayanagara is, is not completely ruptured yet. Um, and uh, various authors have, have argued that as well, um, that this, this connection, the connection between the Nayaka state of Madurai and Vijayanagara, their, their titulary overlord, is never completely ruptured. Um, so it, this relationship is sort of described as a twilight zone kingship um, by symbolic subordination, but, but in fact practical independence, uh, autonomy. Um, so if we move a level below that, so we have a number of these successor, so-called successor states in, in South India. And with a tremendous amount of rivalry right, between these, uh, if you think about Mysore, if you think about um, 
Madurai, but also Tanjavur, right? So there's a tremendous amount of rivalry between these various powers. Um, if we move a level below that, we go to the level of the little kings, the Palayakarars, um, including the Tevar of Ramna, where we have the same kind of um, ambiguous relationship between overlord and, and let's call it, vassal. Um, these vassals are uh, very independent-minded, and uh, supposed to hand over tribute at times to the state, to their overlords, um, but it's a very contentious relationship. Um, so this is this this period is very it's a period of, of instability of contention and this is the context in which the VOC the Dutch East Indian Company moves and um, like I said at times there are attempts to to um, form alliances to bring in the Dutch East Indian Company in this this South Indian Game of Thrones perhaps and. But at the same time, the VOC is never willing to fully commit to this. And it has its own agenda. And so, so that's kind of the dynamics that, uh, that take place here. And the other thing you mentioned, that you do draw some parallels between the Dutch and the Portuguese in South hmm? India. So, right. I, mean, uh, I mean, how much of all this was an attempt to you know, get an edge over the Portuguese? Because by this time, the Portuguese were clearly in decline. Uh, right. So the the, the Dutch um, in 1658 militarily they they expel the Portuguese. Well, what are the Portuguese? Of course, Portuguese Seixado uh, da India. Um, so after 1658, that part of the Portuguese presence is no longer there. But but there's another kind of Portuguese presence, and that at least for a little while continues to worry the the Dutch, and. Um, that of course we we have the the Estado on the west coast of India and that that's taken care of uh, by 1663 with the conquest of the Portuguese settlements um, along the Malabar coast. But what remains are various remnants, one could say. In the interior, we have the the Jesuit Madurai mission, and. Um, so that, that is that is sort of the a part of the the port, continuing Portuguese presence, and along the coast we have these Roman Catholic fishermen, the Parava fishermen, who have converted to Catholicism in the 16th century, and and for a while there are some concerns that this group may serve as fifth columnists right, for a, a possible Portuguese return. Um, so so. For a while, that that continues to worry the the Dutch East India Company, and I and I talk about how gradually the Dutch East India Company comes to some kind of agreement. There's a process of rapprochement, gradual accommodation between the Dutch East India Company and these the Paraba fishermen, and I've, I've written some articles about that too before. Um, but but by by about 1690 or so, uh, this this process of accommodation has, has basically uh, come to completion. It, it starts with the, the lower class members of this group, um, but with the expansion of the Dutch commercial presence, increasing investments in the area, uh, that allows some of the Parava leadership to act as company merchants. And, and also in the 1690s, the liberalization of the Indo-Ceylon trade provides further commercial opportunities. Um, and at the same time, the allowance of uh, religious freedom right, by, by about 1690 or two. Um, these are important uh, concessions um, that 
that uh, leads to this, uh, this process of accommodation. So the Portuguese presence um, diminishes over time. Uh, and one could say 1658 is an important watershed point with the physical conquest of the, the fishery coast, uh, the Portuguese settlements along the southeast coast, and, and of course the, the conquest of Jaffna. Um, and then gradually, with the, the process of accommodation, with the remnants of, well, let's call them Portuguese presence, I mean, to what extent were the Paravas Portuguese, to what extent were the Jesuits, the, the Jesuit mission Portuguese. That, that's a matter for debate. Um, but, but if you want to look at that in, in those terms, Portuguese, um, that, that certainly, by the 1690s, that's, that's virtually um, no longer viewed as a threat. So, back in the Portuguese, what I'm wondering, was there anything like, you know, peculiar, rather unique in the nature of the Dutch interaction with Madurai because, I mean, for example, if you have all the coastal kingdoms, I mean, and the Dutch would first have encountered them, you know, in a commercial sense, I mean, it wouldn't have been planned, you know, it's just they landed and these kingdoms were there. Mm -hmm. But these embassies were, you know, planned, I mean, for the first engagement was a formalized one. Yeah. So in that sense, um, it actually, I mean, uh, make a difference in the way, you know, relations played out. Yeah, actually, um, that's, a, that's an interesting question, um, and it's one of my future projects, what I'd like to do, and I, I've started uh, on that, um, is to compare the embassies of the Dutch East India Company throughout the Indian Ocean, right? And, um, and one of the things that, there, that the Dutch East India Company itself already realized was that, um, that there, are, there are differences in their relative position. In, in the, throughout the Indian Ocean. Um, so basically, they recognized three kinds of statuses, categories. One of them were areas where they traded by right of conquest, where they had um, jurisdiction, where they had relatively large territorial possessions. And these were typically uh, governments, where we have a Dutch governor and council in, in charge. Um, one could think perhaps about um, the, um, the governor of Ceylon, perhaps, is the best example. Uh, a second category um, were areas where the Dutch traded by virtue of exclusive contracts, where they had concluded monopolistic agreements with indigenous rulers. Um, so perhaps one could think about uh, Malabar, right, which, which was a commandment, where we had a commander, a commander in charge. Uh, one can think about the tin districts of Malaysia or the pepper-producing areas along the west coast of Sumatra, right? So these, this was the second area. And then there was a third area where the Dutch traded um, like any other trader, where they resided at the sufferance of indigenous rulers, right? And, of course, this would be the case in areas controlled by the, the Mughal Empire, um, by the Safafis, um, one can also think about Japan, of course. So, so the, the VOC itself realized that, that there were differences in its relative position, what it could achieve and, and what it could do. Now, where does Madurai fit in in this? And, and that's, that's an interesting question, because um, the Dutch themselves were not entirely sure. What they would like to see, of course, and, and what, what they argued, was that Madurai, at least the coastal position, the coastal areas, 
belonged to the Dutch by right of conquest. Right? They had, they had uh, expelled the Portuguese in 1658, so for them that was clear proof that this was by right of conquest, and that therefore they also took over the, the rights and privileges that the Portuguese previously had enjoyed. Um, to some extent, that, that's wishful thinking as well. I mean, this is what they would like. And that's what they would like to have the Nayaka authorities recognize in, in, in various polarized letters, official letters. Um, and in order to solidify that, that's why they, they did, would like to have a fortified settlement, which they eventually get in 1682, when things are really messy along the coast, when the central authorities of Madurai lose control, actually, over the coast because of an invasion from Mysore. Um, and, and it's when the Dutch decide to fish in troubled waters and they actually fortify uh, their settlement, 1682. Not with the, the approval, right, of the Nyaka coast, because that's anything what they would like to see. Um, so, that's what they want. Um, so, Technically, they would like to see the Madurai coast, their possessions there, as falling under their first category. Um, and at times, they assign the title of director, or excuse me, commander, to the, uh, the head of the uh, Dutch settlements along the Madurai coast. Um, at the same time, they, re they realize that what we have here is sort of a shadowy authority, a dual authority, that, that there are competing jurisdictional claims that they are certainly not the sole possessor uh, and controller of the Madurai coast. And I think that that's also why they realize they have to send out these embassies um, to, to get self-permission from the, uh, the Madurai authorities to, to substantiate these claims in, in their mind, right, that they, that they have created this idea of, of by right of conquest. So, um, what I'd like to do in this next project is to, to, to place sort of the, um, the, these embassies in a larger comparative context of the Dutch Indian Ocean world, um, where there are interesting, of course, important similarities in the agenda. And that's why we see also the similarities in the agenda between the 1668, 1677, 1689 mission, um, because typically the VOC is a political merchant who'd like to have um, certain prerogatives, commercial political prerogatives, to support its position. And, and that agenda is, 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 of course, the same throughout the Indian Ocean. However, of course, the margin of operations differ from area to area, and that's what they realize. Right? And so, what was the Madurai reaction? I mean, in the sense that they had already probably dealt with the Portuguese in this capacity, and uh, now they were, you know, dealing with the Dutch. So, wouldn't their earlier experience, you know, with the Portuguese have influenced their mm -hmm. you know, reception of the Dutch? Well, preferably, and, and uh, the Dutch are told that repeatedly, the Dutch should behave like merchants, right? And, um, and that's where their value belongs, too, of course. As merchants, um, they, they import large amounts of bullion. That's, that's typical for this time period, right? The... Um, the bullion for goods, or in this case, uh, the bullion for textile model. The only thing that Europeans before the Industrial Revolution really have to offer uh, to India and China is bullion. And um, so that, of course, is to, to the great benefit of the Madurai state. Um, 
It is important for its fiscal system, uh, the minting, the coinage, the currency, um, and of course it generates wealth to the inhabitants that can subsequently be taxed. Right? Um, so they, they fully value the, the um, usefulness of the Europeans and the Portuguese, but later, of course, the Dutch as investors, as merchants, uh, generating wealth to the area. Um, also as importers of curiosities, right? uh, products, commodities, uh, animals, etc., from faraway places that can serve as important status symbols, right? exotica, um, to rulers. And, of course, the physical presence of an embassy itself is already a status symbol right, for, um, for these rulers. Um, so, apart from that, of course, the, um, the import of war materials. Right? Several, repeatedly, the, the Dutch East India Company and other Europeans are approached to provide either uh, soldiers or war materials to, um, to the Nayaka state. So, so there's, there's certainly an awareness of the usefulness of these, um, these Europeans, but as I said, the important precondition is that they should behave like merchants. Right? They should know their place. Um, so the, the, the Dutch are, and are, are viewed as, as kind of unruly, powerful merchants. Um, a model, a template that already exists, a pre-existing template, is that of the bandit king, and I, I make that point in the introduction. Um, that um, that perhaps the position of the Dutch can be compared to some extent with the groups such as the Maravas or Kalars, um, who were sort of on the outer frontier uh, of, of sedentary society, and, and in fact the Madurai coast can be considered somewhat of, a, of a, an outer frontier, and um, that build up positions as, uh, in some cases, as, as little kings, and that, that who provide protection. In this case, the Dutch one could think of as uh, controlling the maritime trade, selling safe conducts, passes um, to indigenous traders, and eventually managed to establish a port, just just like the Palayakarar, just, just like the, the little kings, right? So, so um, I think in the end there, there's a, there's a certain pre-existing model or pre-existing models, more than one, in which the Europeans can be fitted. Right, if you think about merchants, and, and, and perhaps uh, you can also think about the merchant guilds, perhaps in the medieval period, that, that, that perhaps is a model. They, the, the Europeans do not fit perfectly in these models, of course. There's something different about them, too. But, but, but somehow you can make this work, right? Um, if, you, if you want, if you stretch it a little bit, you can, you can make this work. How important was the naval element, you know, in forging these alliances? Because a lot of the local rulers they didn't really have any navy, so a European power, you know, with a powerful navy, yep. which would probably be useful. I, I think the, the naval element is uh, more important as far as the Tevar of Ramnat is concerned, compared to the, relatively speaking, to the, the Nayakas of Madurai. Um, the state of, of Ramnath, the Tevars of Ramnath, was much more dependent and connected with, uh, with maritime affairs compared to, relatively speaking, to the Nayaka state. Um, and um, this, this, in the end, will lead to two armed conflicts, one in 1685 and 1690, between the Dutch and Ramnath, um, where 
um, the Tevas, the rulers of Ramnath, use a Muslim political merchant, the Piriyatambis, the Piriyatambi Marakayars, um, to further their, their own maritime interests. Um, they have certain commodities to offer, the chunks, um, and uh, of course textiles. And um, what is interesting is, of course, that rulers such as the, uh, the, the Tevas of Ramnath officially profess that they have no interest in, in profits, right? It's this anti-commercial ethos that, that, that officially exists. Uh, but he considers this an important status symbol. So that's why he wants to... Uh, he actually owns a number of ships that he sends out to Bengal, um, to Aceh, etc. And um, he realizes he needs safe conducts, passes from the Dutch right, in order not to be harassed. He's vulnerable there. Um, so the Tevars do not have their own navy. Um, the Nayaka state doesn't have its own navy. So they realize that, in, at least on the open seas, they are dependent on these Europeans. But what they learn, they learn that to play this game is to play off Europeans against each other. And that's why, in the end, this, this entire effort by the Dutch, um, to that which they take over, which they copy from the Portuguese, right? The Cartazes system, the Cartazes and Capilla system. Um, why this whole effort fails? Because if you can't get a safe conduct from the Dutch, well, you can always get one from the English or the French. And what you do as, as, a, as a company official, a Dutch East India Company official, and you, you encounter a ship with, a, with an English safe conduct or a French safe conduct, well, there's not much you can do because of repercussions in Europe, right? So, so they, they learn to play this game, right? And, and um, when they ask, and, and the Tevar is very good in this, um, when, when um, they ask for a safe conduct, etc., um, they, they let it known uh, implicitly that if you, if you don't give us this, then we'll, we'll go to, the, to somebody else, right? And, and in the end, after a lot of uh, sputtering and, and the protesting, etc., the Dutch always come forth with, with a safe conduct or a passport or, or, or these ships. But there's no Navy. So if you think about it, um, um, that's why in the... the Dutch Ramnath Wars, if you can call them wars, 1685 and 1690, the Dutch clearly have the mastery of the, of the, the sea. Right? There, there's really nothing that uh, these indigenous rulers can do against it, and as far as direct maritime power, naval power. There are other ways to balance um, the maritime supremacy. Right? And that's why historians have talked about um, the... Uh, uh, balance of black, perhaps that's one term that is used. Right, the Europeans certainly in the open seas have a maritime supremacy, but on land they're vulnerable. Right, um, I believe that Ashinda's Gupta, um, and um, Europeans realize that. That's why conflicts, for the most part, tend to be limited. Right, another term, uh, the age of contained conflict. Uh, Sanjay Subramanian used that term. Um, so, so the conflict typically. And, and this is typical for the wars that take place. Um, the Dutch wage a war against Madurai in 1669, the Tutukarina War, and they have two armed conflicts um, um, with the state of Ramnath, 1685-1690. They're all short-term conflicts, right? They're, they're relatively quickly settled, because both parties realize uh, they can't afford to escalate this. I mean, they both have their own vulnerabilities. Um, so... Um, no name counterparts, to make a long story short, 
the contractors. Um, you mentioned that uh, this book was a part of your like, doctoral research. So, I mean, what are you currently working on? I mean, what's the broader context of your research? Yeah, so um, what I'm working on now, and it's in a fairly far um, stage of, of completion, is um, to transform that, that uh, dissertation research into uh, the next book project. And um, what that does is to provide an overview of the relationship between the Dutch and the Nayaka state of Madurai from the, its inception, 1645, is when the Dutch established a trading settlement at Kailpatnam along the southeast coast of India, until about 1690. So it appeared for about four and a half decades. And what the book does is to distinguish certain sub-periods in this interaction. Um, 1645, the establishment of the trading settlement is kind of premature. Uh, conditions are not yet uh, ripe yet. The Portuguese are still too firmly entrenched. So um, they're actually, in 1649, the, the Dutch are expelled from, um, from their trading settlement, from Kyle Patnam. They, they, they try to um, wreak revenge. Right? You can't let this happen without um, damaging your reputation. So they send out a punitive expedition, etc. Um, but they don't really um, re-establish, they re-establish themselves until 1657. So that's the first period of interaction in the sub-period. This period from 1645, the, the first settlement, till about 1657. Um, then the next period is from 1658 when they, they expel the Portuguese from the fishery coast, the Madurai coast, till about um, 1669, the Tutukarin War, the war between the Dutch and Madurai, short-term conflict. It's, it's during this time period when you see tensions gradually build up um, when both parties pursue aggressive policies, this is the context of the first embassy of 1668, the Bangreda mission, um, and that sort of culminates in this, this uh, open conflict in 1669. So that's um, when temporarily the Madurai coast assumes a central position right, in, in, in both um, horizons, in, 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 on both sides, whereas normally it, it's sort of a secondary theater um, for, for both parties. But temporarily, in 1669, it assumes central um, stage. The third period, it's the period uh, from 1670 to 1679, um, this is a, a time period when both parties are going to suffer from overextension, imperial overextension. Um, the Nayaka state gets involved in the conquest of Tanjavur, and they actually temporarily controlled Tanjavur for, for two years, 1673-1675. But then there's a powerful backlash against it from various groups, including the Marathas. So the Marathas get involved at this point. Uh, Mysore also starts to take over large territories of Madurai in the 1670s. The Dutch senior company in the 1670s has to pay its price for imperial overextension. Um, on the island of Ceylon, and um, also, um, it gets involved in 
a series of succession wars in Java. So, by the 1670s, late 1670s, uh, this chapter is called The Price of War, both, both parties basically um, suffer from, from this imperial overextension. And this is the context of the second embassy, right? the embassy by uh, Adolf Bossing. In the last chapter, it's the period of the 1680s, from about um, 1680 to 1689, this is, um, initially I called this chapter business as usual, because this is a time period when seemingly both parties recover from their overextension in the previous decade. Um, but um, I think I'm going to rename it Splendid Isolation, because um, what happened? is that during this period, the 1680s, there are larger forces at work that gradually overtake both Madurai and the Dutch East India Company. Right? We have the escalation of the Mughal-Maratha conflict, and um, we also have, on the other hand, the English and the French start to penetrate um, what, what the Dutch until that time considered their own um, sphere of, of interest. So, even though there's a seemingly a seeming recovery by the late 1680s, um, there are indications that, that gradually things are about to change. So, so that, that's, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm working on now. This is sort of the, the larger historical context um, of this four and a half decades of, of interaction. And whereas the, the previous book, the, the present book that we're discussing here now, is, is uh, just focusing on, on some episodes in this interaction, but, but that can, use, can be used as, as um, um, etching points, measuring stones for, uh, for, um, for this, this relationship. Um, that was fascinating. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, but we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, so we won't keep you any longer, but uh, if you have any other publications, uh, we'd be very glad to have you talk to the New Books Network again. Uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for talking to us. Um, goodbye. Thank you, Dara. It was a pleasure. So, Fox, a fantastic talk about an Indo-European engagement that is often ignored in favor of the dominant discourse on Indo-English engagement. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.